and hear now God's word. Why do the nations rage and the peoples meditate a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against Jehovah and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds asunder and cast away their cords from us. He that sitteth in the heavens will laugh. The Lord will have them in derision. Then will he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. Yet I have set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. I will tell of the decree Jehovah said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Ask of me, and I will give thee the nations for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron, thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore be wise, O ye kings, be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve Jehovah with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and ye perish in the way, for his wrath will soon be kindled. Blessed are all they that take refuge in him. And thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you and ask that you would open our eyes and our hearts that we might see the wonder of your truth and grace and love, that we might with our hearts receive your uh, grace, that we might be changed by your word and spirit, that we would understand better how we should think and live as your people and bring glory to your name, not only as we sing in this place and praise and pray, but that we might bring glory to your name as we live our lives throughout this week. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Everybody is all uh, a titter in uh, Washington, D.C. You know, we're getting ready for a real big day. There's a big change of political regime that is coming here in this country. After many years, those horrible Republicans have been turned out of office and will no longer have the presidency. And now we will have a Democratic president and a Democratic Congress, and everybody's getting ready to hoop and holler and have a great time of celebration at the installation. Not me. I'm really frightened by what this prospect is bringing us of a president that will be in the same party with the Congress, and all of them are joined together in opposing the Lord Jesus Christ and his government. I am not at all excited about that. I dread that day, and I pray about it. I hope you do, too. But nevertheless, our nation is very excited. We have a president. He's young. He seems to bring some kind of sense of change and dynamism, and he's a personable fellow and so forth. The fact that he is a traitor to his own country, an adulterer, and somebody who is tolerant to the murder of babies doesn't seem to have affected our nation that this is what we have put, this is the kind of man we have put in the highest office of our land. And what does that say about us as a people? That we would be ruled in this way. But everybody's excited, we're going to have a big party. There's a new political regime that's come to town. Well, I'm not excited about that. I'm not real favorable to what's going on there. But I have to tell you more broadly, there's a sense in which this coming of a new political regime 
It's just so much ho-hum. Ho-hum if you look at the course of history, and ho-hum if you understand your Bible. A new political regime, well, of course, that is the, uh, the very uh, course of Western history, to have geopolitical agitation, one nation after another. You have one ruler, and then he's gone. Another ruler, and he's gone. You have one mighty empire, and it's gone. Up and down, up and down, up and down. This is, you see, what history is all about. And so this is just one more step, one more turn of the wheel in the pattern of world history. Kingdom after kingdom, regime after regime, king after king, and a never-ending quest for dominion over the world. Who will subdue the nations? Who will demand the allegiance of men? Well, we have a president sitting right now waiting for this day of the inauguration of the new one, and he proclaimed a new world, right? He's going to bring a new world government for us. And yet, he couldn't even get his own country to return him to office. Do you see the vanity of political rulers? Grandiose schemes, and he's now out of office. And we have a president coming to office who proclaims a new covenant. Again, we love these biblical terms and concepts. But what did the sitting president and what does the president who is to be installed... What do they have in common with the theology that would talk about a new world order or the theology that would bring us a new covenant? Are they interested in the substance of biblical theology or only the connotation of the biblical terms? Obviously, it's the latter. And Psalm 2 tells us about this. It tells us that God is the one who brings and has brought a new political regime to office. It has nothing to do with Bill Clinton. It has nothing to do with George Bush. It has nothing to do with the United States of America, if we might get rid of our patriotic pride for just a minute and be humbled before the Word of God. In Psalm 2, we read that the nations rage and the peoples meditate on a vain thing. The psalmist sees the uh, people of the world all agitated. They're all provoked. They're working hard to accomplish something, but what they're thinking to accomplish, what they have planned, the Bible calls vain and futile. The kings of the earth have set themselves and the rulers have taken counsel together. And what they have done is they've gotten together so that they might oppose Jehovah, and specifically, they might oppose the anointed one of Jehovah, his Christ. In the Old Testament, where you read of the anointed, the Greek translation would be Christos. They want to oppose Jehovah and his Christ, and specifically, they would break their bonds asunder and cast away their cords from us. We have a president that's going to be installed who speaks of a new covenant. A president and a vice president who are not ashamed to uh, publicly uh, portray their Baptist church membership so that all of us who are in the unthinking Christian community might just go right along and say, well, isn't this wonderful? And yet, these men and others like them, I'm, they just happen to be the figureheads. You can apply this down the line. These men and senators and congressmen and governors and all the rest who like to speak religiously and show their church membership have no interest in bowing the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. As long as Jesus will keep his place 
and not interfere in the affairs of the real world where these men rule, then they're happy with Jesus, a tamed Jesus, a domesticated Jesus, a Jesus who doesn't require them to obey him or give any directions or presume to rule over them. You see, they're just part of what the psalmist describes here in Psalm 2. They're part of this great group of world leaders that take counsel together and plan to throw off the cords, to break all connection with Jehovah and with his anointed, except for PR purposes. If Jesus will help you get elected, then Jesus can be used in your campaign. But Jesus will not be the Lord. He will not be the one who governs them. They really want nothing to do with Jesus. Jesus loves children. And Jesus respects human life. And yet we have men who rule over us who say, I don't want to mix religion and politics. Boy, I'd never get an abortion or favor one, but who am I to tell anybody they can't have an abortion? You know, that is not simply to play the fool philosophically and intellectually. When people say that kind of thing, I always think to myself, what would they do if we put into the slot where they had the word abortion, cannibalism? Well, I would never want to be a cannibal. I would never want to eat my next door neighbor. But who am I to tell other people, you know, what their dietary preferences should be? You know, we laugh at that because it is asinine. The thinking makes no sense whatsoever. But you see, it's more than just asinine thinking that disturbs me here. It's also to defy Jesus Christ to his face. Because he has told the nations how they are to govern themselves. And when we say, well, we don't want to offend anybody except you, Jesus. Of course, we don't mind offending you. You see, that's the difficulty. The nations take counsel together. They're in an agitation. They don't want the Christ. They don't want Jehovah's ruler to rule over them. And how do you think God takes that? What would you imagine? The sovereign God who created the heavens and the earth, who governs all things according to his counsel. This God, probably in the heavens, seeing the nations wanting nothing to do with his chosen ruler, must be just in fear and trembling. Don't you imagine? Just shaking like a leaf in fear in heaven because the nations won't accept his chosen ruler. No way. The psalm tells us, and this is one of the very, very, very few places where God is described in this way in the Bible. The psalm tells us in verse 4, He that sits in the heavens will laugh. He sits in the heavens laughing at the nations who defy him and his chosen anointed. The Lord will have them in derision. This is a very, very, very small analogy. What would you imagine Michael Jordan would feel like if some junior high kid out on the playground were to challenge him and start swearing at him and trying to pull him down and say, you have no dignity, you can't take me on, I'm ready for you, Jordan, let's do it. What do you think he would do? He would probably laugh, wouldn't he? He'd say, you're cute, kid, and get away from me, you know? He certainly wouldn't say, oh, oh, there's somebody out there, one of these junior high kids, he might be better than me. Of course not. In the same way, the Lord has chosen the one to rule over the nations. And the nations say, no, we don't want it. Forget it. We defy you to your face, Jesus. We will not be ruled by you. Do you think God says, 
Oh, no, they won't give Jesus a chance. He laughs and holds them in derision. Then will he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. God will show what he does to agitate the nations when they defy his rule and his chosen king. So in the first five verses of Psalm 2, we see that the nations oppose God's intended plan for how they should be governed. But God laughs at their puny efforts to resist him. And then in verses 6 to 9 of this psalm, the psalmist tells us that God has established the rule of his son as king over all the world and has given him the ends of the earth to possess and to govern. Jesus has been installed as God's chosen ruler and God has promised him the ends of the earth that he might have dominion over them and govern them. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. God has installed the king. When did he do that? When did the new political regime begin? Well, if you've been listening to the hymns we sang this morning, you should be able to answer that question. Jesus came into this world as a king. I need to take just a moment or two and dwell on that sentence that I have just uttered because I want you to appreciate the theology that's involved in it. Jesus came into this world as the king. Why do I have to emphasize that? Why do you have to stop and think about that, not just let it roll off you? Because so many Christian preachers suggest to you that Jesus was not the king at his first advent, that he failed to establish his kingdom, and that someday he must come back, and then he will be the king. But nothing could be further from the truth, as we'll see as we go through our lesson this morning. Jesus came into this world as the king. The angels declared him to be so. But obviously a king in humiliation. A king not well received. A king rejected by his people and crucified. But what was written upon the placard over his head when he was crucified? The king of the Jews. And this king, though rejected by men and crucified, rose from the dead because God has set him on his holy hill of Zion. God honors the king. God shows that he has his favor, that Jesus is righteous in his sight and death cannot hold him. And having been raised from the dead and demonstrated to be the Christ, the chosen of God, the king of David, he then ascends on high. Jesus did not leave this world a defeated monarch. Jesus did not leave this world so he could regroup and come back and try again later. Jesus left this world to take his throne, to sit down at the right hand of God and from there rule over all creation. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. And then the anointed one speaks and says, I will tell of the decree, Jehovah. Jehovah said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Ask of me, and I will give thee the nations for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. You notice that the Christ need only ask, and Jehovah has promised to give him the entire earth to rule over. He only has to ask. Jesus has prayed to that end. 
Jesus came into this world that he might rule. Jesus knew the promise of the Father that all things would be given to him. He was faithful unto death, was raised in vindication, seated at the right hand of God. He has prayed this prayer. What now will Jehovah do? Did Jehovah ever break his word? Are any of his promises null and void? Of course not. God is now given, giving to his anointed king the nations of this earth. And he is subduing them. Now some of them resist that. Some of them do not want to have the grace and favor that he offers as the king and savior of men. And what happens to these nations? Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Do you have any doubt about that? That Jesus rules the nations and he does so in judgmental wrath when they resist his rule? Well, think about the Roman Empire for a moment. Roman Empire had every military advantage. The Roman Empire had every economic advantage. The Roman Empire had every advantage when it came to numbers, to geographical sovereignty. Where is the Roman Empire today? This empire which would cast our friends, our fellow believers, into the lions. Where's the Roman Empire today? Everybody's afraid of Rome, right? We all go, you know, in the United Nations, and the, we know that the nation that carries the big stick there is Rome, right? Rome is nothing today. It's a laughing stock politically and militarily. But one day it ruled and it oppressed the people of God. And then Jesus broke them, just like you would if you had an iron rod and a, and a fine vase in the other hand. Jesus broke the Roman Empire. There was a time when I would never have thought the Berlin Wall would come down. In my lifetime, certainly not. There was a time when I could not envision the Communist Party being outlawed in Russia. You're, the Communist Party was the only party in Russia for all these years. After the Bolshevik Revolution, Lenin came to power, and in the first election they had for a Congress of Deputies, the Communist Party collected only 25% of the seats in the Congress. So Lenin had an answer for that. He eliminated that Congress and declared that the Communist Party alone would be the party in Russia. We know, those of us who are old enough to have lived through a few of these years in the 20th century, we know the kind of iron grip the Communists had in Russia. There's no way communism was going to be out of Russia, the Berlin Wall come down. But in our lifetime, Jesus broke them with a rod of iron. Nations rise and fall, but the kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ has endured through all of that. God has set his king upon his holy hill. He has said, just ask me, I'll give you the nations for your inheritance. Now, in a sense, the entire Bible, the entire Bible can be summarized in this message that there's a new political regime in town. Again, that has nothing to do with what will happen in January in this country with the coming of Bill Clinton to office. The Bible talks about the need for a new political regime, and in a sense, that's the message of Scripture from cover to cover. And that's what I'd like to demonstrate for you this morning. If you'd like to go through these verses with me, if you have nimble fingers, we'll move through quite a few of them. But first of all, I want you to see that the Old Testament, 
the Old Testament was all about the anticipated coming of this king. You can unify all the theology of the Old Testament under this simple anticipation. God is sending a new king to rule. In Genesis 49.10, we read, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh come, and unto him shall the gathering of the people be. Shiloh will come. And when he comes, he will be the lawgiver. He will be the ruler. And all the people will be gathered to him. Numbers 24, 17. There shall come a star out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. God will bring forth Shiloh, this one to whom all the nations will bow. Will bring forth Shiloh out of Jacob. He will be the scepter that rules out of Israel. In 1 Samuel 2, verse 10, we read, He shall give strength unto his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. He will be the Christ. Shiloh, the star that will rise and rule over all, will be the anointed of God. Consider Psalm 45, verses 3 to 7. Gird thy sword upon thy thigh, O most mighty, and with thy glory and thy majesty. Ride prosperously because of truth and meekness and righteousness. And thy right hand shall teach thee terrible things. Thine arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies, whereby the people fall under thee. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of thy kingdom is a right scepter. Thou lovest righteousness and hatest wickedness. Therefore God, thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. This one who is coming is God himself, and yet God will anoint this one who is God with the oil of gladness that he will rule over all men. Psalm 89, I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn unto David my servant, thy seed will I establish forever and build up thy throne unto all generations. And I will beat down his foes before his face and plague them that hate him. I will make him my firstborn higher than the kings of the earth. His seed shall endure forever and his throne as the sun before me. It will be established forever as the moon and as a faithful witness to heaven. God has sworn he has entered into covenant with his anointed that he will rule over the kings of the earth and God will beat down his foes before his face. In Psalm 110, the first two verses, David writes, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of thy strength out of Zion. Rule thou in the midst of thine enemies. You notice this is not talking about the rule of the Messiah after the separation of sheep and goats at the end of time. It's not talking about the rule of the Messiah in the new heavens and the new earth where righteousness dwells because in the new heavens and in the new earth there are no enemies. This says, rule thou in the midst of thine enemies. God has promised that Jesus, his chosen, the Christ, will rule in this life 
before the second coming, as we know it in, the set, in, in New Testament terms. Jesus will rule in the midst of his rulers, uh, in the midst of his enemies. God says, sit at my right hand until this is accomplished. All your enemies are the footstool of your feet. In, in Isaiah, the ninth chapter, verses 6 and 7, this is a text that we often read at this time of the year when we celebrate the advent of our Savior. We know that um, a son is going to be born who is mighty God and the Prince of Peace. But listen to what else Isaiah says. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of the increase of his government and of peace there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. One is coming who will be mighty God and he will rule as the Prince of Peace and his government shall increase and increase. And justice will be established in the earth. And you have doubt about that because it just doesn't seem like it's happening or it isn't happening fast enough or it isn't clear enough to you. But Isaiah says, and the zeal of Jehovah of hosts will accomplish this. This is the promise of God. A king is coming. God has promised a king. His king, his chosen king, his anointed, his very son. Jeremiah 23, verses 5 and 6 Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will raise unto David a righteous branch, and a king shall reign and prosper, and shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. In his days Judah shall be saved, and Israel shall dwell safely. And this is the name whereby he shall be called, Yahweh de Sedekah, Jehovah our righteousness. Jehovah is coming. He will be our righteousness. And he will rule and bring justice and peace to the earth. In Daniel, the seventh chapter, verses 13 and 14, we read, Behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom, and all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom shall not be destroyed. It is mighty God who is coming, Jehovah our righteousness, and yet he's like unto the Son of Man. So you can understand the wonder and the paradox even of Micah, the fifth chapter, verses 2 and 4, where the prophet Micah says, But thou, Bethlehem, out of thee shall come forth unto me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. He shall be great unto the ends of the earth. Someone is going to be born in Bethlehem, but this one who is born, his goings forth are from everlasting. The eternal one is going to be born in Bethlehem. Isn't this amazing? How could anybody read the Old Testament and not be excited about this? How could they not understand? Why, for crying out loud, when Jesus was born, did it take pagan magi to figure it out and come looking for this one who was born, King of the Jews? 
In Zechariah 9, verses 9 and 10, the prophet says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding upon an ass, upon a colt, the foal of an ass. And he shall speak peace unto the heathen, and his dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Zechariah says, One is coming to rule over you in a very strange way. He's not going to come upon a white horse looking like a victorious warrior. He's not going to come with a lot of outward pomp and circumstance and a display of power. He's not going to look like a Norman Schwarzkopf or some kind of popular rock singer coming to town. He's going to come riding upon a donkey. And yet he's the sovereign one. He comes to you lowly. He is your savior because he humiliates himself that he might rule over all. Well, that's just the Old Testament. You see, and we've been flying through these verses very, very quickly. The whole Old Testament anticipated God sending a new political regime. The day is coming when a king will rule over us. The Gospels announce the coming of the king. At the time of Jesus' birth, the angel announced to Mary, his mother, he shall be great and shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. He shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. You know, if you just had the, the few verses we've reviewed already in the Old Testament in your mind, you hear these words of the angel, you know very well, the angel is saying, all that you've been waiting for, that king that the Old Testament proclaims is coming, is coming now. He's going to be born. Mary, you're going to give him birth. It's a little wonder that the um, gospel writer says that Mary wondered what kind of salutation this is. She had the anticipated Savior. I'm going to be the mother of the Savior, this king that's going to rule over all. And so the wise men, as I've already indicated, came looking for one who is called the King of the Jews. At the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, Nathanael said to him in John 1.49, Rabbi, thou art the Son of God, thou art the King of Israel. You notice Jesus and saying, now wait a minute, wait a minute. You're, you're really going a little too far here, Nathanael. A good Old Testament prophet would be just fine. You could just call me a good teacher and I'll be happy with that. He said, you're the son of God, you're the king of Israel. And Jesus, by his grand silence, says, you've said it right. And the preaching of Jesus is summarized in this expression given to us in Mark 1.15. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Can you imagine anybody saying that? For hundreds of years, the Jews have been promised this king is going to rule over all the nations and bring peace and justice. This one that will be God and man. They've been waiting and waiting. Jesus says the time's fulfilled. Everything you've been looking for has now come about. And the kingdom of God is at hand. And Jesus' own teaching focused on the nature of God's kingdom. I think of Matthew, the 13th chapter, as one example, 
where Jesus tells his kingdom parables so that people would understand the nature of his rule, what kind of king he was. In Luke 17, verse 21, having cast out demons, Jesus openly declared, the kingdom of God is among you. If I've broken the power of Satan, then the new political regime is here. The king has come. And at the time of his final entry into Jerusalem, we remember the prophecy of Zechariah that we saw just a few moments ago. That prophecy is quoted in Matthew 21.5 when the crowds cried out, Behold, thy king comes unto you. The crowd sang, Hosanna, blessed is the king of Israel that comes in the name of the Lord. And over his cross, Pilate wrote those words, the king of the Jews. What's the Bible all about? The Bible is all about a new political regime, a new king, a new ruler. Not just over the United States, not just over California, not just over the Western Empire, but over all the earth. The Old Testament anticipates the coming of the king. The Gospels declare he has come. And Jesus explains the nature of his kingship. If we could look at just two verses quickly. First, Matthew 27, 11. Jesus is being tried before Pilate. In verse 11 we read, Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, saying, Art thou the king of the Jews? And Jesus said unto him, You've said it. It's interesting. If you study the trials of Jesus, and the majestic silence that he uses when he's interrogated. At one point, Jesus wouldn't answer a question of Pilate's. And Pilate says, don't you know who you're standing before? I have power over you. I have authority over you. Jesus says, you wouldn't have any authority if it hadn't been given to you from above. Jesus was willing to defy the authority even of the representative of the Roman Empire. But here he's not silent. Yeah, understandably, Pilate wants to know, what about this claim to kingship? What's this all about, Jesus? Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus very eloquently and briefly, succinctly says, that's right. What can Pilate do with that kind of claim? Well, he has to look upon him as somebody who's really harmless. I mean, he thinks he's the king of the Jews, big deal. Here his own people are calling for his crucifixion. When Pilate takes Jesus out and sets him before the Jews and says, I find no fault in the man, they say, crucify him. And Pilate says, crucify your king. So he's being very sarcastic. And you know what the Jews responded? Can you imagine the Jews who have the Old Testament as their history and heritage and legacy? These Jews respond, we have no king but Caesar. These Jews that hate Roman domination, who hate the Roman soldiers being on Palestinian soil, these Jews say, because they so despise God's anointed king, they say, we have no king but Caesar. Look at John 18, verses 33 to 37. 
John 18.33 Pilate therefore entered again into the praetorium and called Jesus and said unto him, Art thou the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Sayest thou this of thyself, or did others tell it thee concerning me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Thine own nation and the chief priests delivered thee unto me. What hast thou done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not from this world. If my kingdom were from this world, then would my servants fight, that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from here. Pilate therefore said unto him, Art thou a king then? Jesus said, Thou sayest that I am a king. To this end have I been born, and to this end am I come into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate's mystified. Jesus says, My kingdom doesn't arise from this world. Would you please remember, because this verse has been so mutilated, so poorly interpreted, slaughtered by biblical interpreters that have an axe to grind. Jesus is not saying, my kingdom has nothing to do with this world. <clears throat> Jesus says, the source of my authority is not this world. My kingdom is not of this world. At the end of the verse, he says, it's not from here. I rule from above. Now, if my kingdom were like your kingdom, Pilate, like all the other kingdoms of this world, then my followers would take up swords and would fight. But they don't do that because I don't rule by physical compulsion. I rule by means of the truth. I'm the king of the truth. And all those who are of the truth submit to me. They hear my voice. And so Jesus explains that his is a supernatural kingdom in origin. And his is a kingdom that rules in terms of the gospel the proclamation of the truth and the change of the hearts of men. But he was crucified. Crucified with the placard, the king of the Jews, over his head. Remember the Jews went to Pilate and they said, don't say king of the Jews, say that he said that he was king of the Jews. And Pilate by this time is fed up with dealing with the Jews and he says, what I've written, I've written so that Pilate becomes an unwitting testimony to the truth, even in his own hardened heart. He testifies that Jesus not only claimed, but Jesus is the King of the Jews. What's the rest of the New Testament about? I said the Old Testament anticipates the coming of a new political regime. The Gospels declare the King is here. What does the rest of the New Testament talk about? It talks about the expansion of that kingly rule. Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20. Jesus, risen from the dead, tells his followers, all power and authority in heaven and on earth is mine. Go make disciples of the nations. Teach them whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always to the end of the world. Jesus said, take my kingly rule by means of the truth, take that to the nations. Teach them what I have taught you. Baptize them. Have them follow me. In Acts 5.31 we read, Him hath God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and a savior. And in 1 Timothy 6.15, Paul says of Jesus, Who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. 
And how does this new king, this new political regime rule? And why does he rule? Ephesians 1, verse 20. Which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and made him to sit at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but in that which is to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him to be head over all things for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that fills all in all. Jesus now rules over all authorities. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And God has given him that kind of dominion for the sake of the church, for the benefit of the church. In 1 Corinthians 15, verses 23 to 27, Paul tells us that at this very time, Jesus is subduing all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy that he will subdue is death itself. And he will subdue death when he raises his people from the dead at his second coming. And so between now and the second coming of Jesus, what we all expect is that he will bring every enemy under his feet to acknowledge his rule and that for the sake of his people for the church. In Revelation 19, we have a picture of this reigning Savior riding upon a white horse and conquering the nations. But the sword by which he conquers the nations is not in his hand. It's not the sword that brings uh, literal bloodshed. He rather rules in terms of a sword that proceeds from his mouth. The very word and truth of Jesus will conquer the nations. And then one day, one fine and final day, he will come back and as the king will judge us all. Look at Matthew 25, verses 31 to 34. Matthew 25, 31. And when the Son of Man shall come in his glory, and all the angels with him, then shall he sit on the throne of his glory, and before him shall be gathered all the nations, and he shall separate them one from another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he shall set the sheep on his right hand and the goats on the left. Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come ye, blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Jesus will one day consummate his kingly rule. And as the king, he will invite all those who are his sheep who have been of the truth and have heard his voice to enter into the kingdom prepared from all eternity for them. And he will say to those who did not know him, depart from me into everlasting darkness. And the one who has been enthroned upon Zion, the one who sits at God's right hand, will say to those who defied him to the end, then you be destroyed forever. This is what the Bible's all about. A new political regime. The anticipation of the Old Testament, the declaration of the Gospels that the king is here, and the rest of the New Testament talking about the expansion of his kingly rule and the consummation when he will be king over all and will finally destroy his enemies and reward those who have bent the knee to him. Now how should you respond to this king? 
We know what Bill Clinton wants you to do. He wants you to respond to his new political regime. We know all the kinds of parties and the hoopla that's going to be there. But you know, once he has been installed as our new leader, the day will come in sadness and disappointment. It will set in and we'll realize it's just been another turn of the humanist wheel. And it hasn't brought, has not brought the kind of salvation, has not brought the period of peace and prosperity and righteousness and justice and goodwill that people were looking for. And that's because we've been looking to the wrong ruler. And the ruler that we have has not looked to the one who rules over him. How should we respond back in Psalm 2? At the 10th verse, we read, Now therefore be wise, O ye kings. Be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Learn something, the Bible says. Realize that if you do not submit to God's chosen king, then you will perish in the way. Serve Jehovah with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath will soon be kindled. Kiss the Son. We know that when Samuel anointed David, excuse me, when he anointed Saul, we read that he kissed Saul as a gesture of submission. That's what Psalm 2 is referring to here when it advises all the rulers of the earth, indeed all of us, to kiss the Son. Show your allegiance. Bow before Him. Submit to His rule. <clears throat> kiss the Son or perish in the way. Make Him the ruler over all the affairs of your life. Acknowledge that His law and His government is over all the world. And no one dare defy him except at the cost of being crushed by the one who truly rules. <clears throat> and if you would submit to him, as the end of the psalm says, Blessed are all they that take their refuge in him. If you would take refuge in him, then the Bible would tell you as well that you need to be joined to the church of Jesus Christ and to show that allegiance by your membership in the church. In Matthew 16, 19, we read that the church holds the keys of the kingdom. The keys open and close doors, obviously. Admission to and expulsion from the kingdom are acknowledged by the authority of the church. <coughs> in Colossians 1, verses 13 and 18, Paul speaks of our being translated into the kingdom of his dear son who is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. The kingdom is broader than the church, because in all things Christ is to have preeminence. But our being translated into this kingdom to know its blessing is marked by our coming under the head of the church, professing our faith, being baptized, and having fellowship with God's people and working together as a new kingdom, an international kingdom, to spread the rule of the king. As I said in Ephesians 1.22, Paul says that God put all things in subjection under his feet, made him head over all things for the sake of the church. And so 
if you would acknowledge the rule of this king, then you too must do what the king tells you to do in terms of being part of his body, being under his rule in the church of Jesus Christ. The real issue for all of us, whether we're Bill Clinton or just people living here in Grass Valley, the real issue for all of us this Christmas season, if we understand the declaration of the new political regime, the issue is, will we be ruled by anyone? Will we have false allegiances, or will we bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ and acknowledge that God has set up a new king, and he rules over us? Will we acknowledge his rule and publicly identify with his kingdom? If we will not, then we have no right to criticize those political rulers who act just like we do and do not acknowledge his kingdom and bow the knee to him. May God change all of our hearts that we might recognize more clearly that the theme of Scripture from cover to cover is submission to the Lord Jesus Christ as God's chosen king. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do pray that you might bring revival to our land. And specifically, we pray, Heavenly Father, that you might, by the power of your Spirit, strike through to the hearts of those who are taking office to rule over us, locally, regionally, nationally. We do pray that you would change their hearts, take away their agitation, take away their resistance, take away their rebellion to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. We pray that they would submit to the Lord Jesus Christ, that they would honor his government, that they would kiss the Son, lest they perish in the way. But we pray for ourselves as well, that we would, one, better appreciate that you have taught us from cover to cover in your holy word, that you have intended to and indeed have now accomplished the establishment of a new political regime over men. Help us to think more in terms of the rule of Jesus Christ over all this world. Help us to see Jesus ruling in his glory. Help us to bow our own knee, to bow our hearts to him, to hear the truth from him, to be discipled unto him, to come even through the doors of the church to enjoy the blessing of his kingdom. Give us hearts and minds and mouths that wish to proclaim this new ruler so that as people are putting their false hopes and their futile hopes in the rulers among men that we might direct their thoughts to the true king the Lord Jesus Christ that he might be glorified and we do pray that you would hasten the day in which the kingdoms of this world are the kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in his name Amen Let's sing in response to the word of God this morning, Joy to the World, number 337.